But actually, we're going to begin the book of Romans today. Romans lesson one. And Romans, I should say, is not lacking in the number of commentaries that are written on it. You can find commentaries on Romans almost anywhere. But even with all the commentaries written on this letter, I thought that it would be fitting to end this time of focusing, this two years of focusing on the book of Matthew with Romans. Fitting because Romans is a systematic rendering of our faith in the Messiah, Yeshua. It also renders what it means to walk in his ways through this life. It brings together all that we learned in our study of Matthew. It gives us a way of looking at and living in the world as believers in Messiah Yeshua. And I noticed as we went through the Gospel of Matthew that there were, uh, I wouldn't say many, but at least some who really didn't have a systematic understanding of even the good news, the kingdom of heaven and so on. Well, understanding how Shaul identifies himself in this letter will help us understand. In the very first few verses, he starts to hammer home what this great salvation means for us. And as I studied out these first seven verses this, mor- this week, I realized that if I didn't have the rest of the book and I just had a knowledge of the book of Matthew and the Torah, I could probably stop right there and have a complete understanding of what the rest of the letter was about in just the first seven verses. Now, before we begin the first order of business, before we even read the first verse, is to order the book. And it breaks down into three parts, real nice. The first eight chapters deal with our righteousness. The first five of those deal with how we are made righteous, our justification, how we're reconciled to God. Then the next two chapters, six and eight, deal with sanctification, our relationship with God. And the power it affords us to overcome the sin in our lives. And chapter 8 also deals with the result of this, our glorification. The next three chapters, chapters 9 through 11, deal with God's relationship with Israel. After dealing with justification and God's love for us, Paul must reconcile for the readers Israel's place with God. The reasons that he does this we'll speak of as we get on in the book. But in short, remember that he's writing this letter primarily to non-Jews living in Rome. We could figure that at this time it was about 80% non-Jew in Rome and 20% Jewish in the congregation. And so if we were writing primarily to Romans, why would he include this section on Israel to his audience? Well, If I were to tell you that you've been justified by the love of God and because of your acceptance of Yeshua, you can no longer be separated from God because now you're in covenant relationship with God, I should think, if you knew the Bible at all, your response would be to ask me, well, Stan, if Israel was in covenant relationship with God and rejected by God, what makes you think that God might not change his mind about us as well? And so Paul, anticipating this, response deals with Israel and God's love for Israel and his plan for Israel 
So chapters 9 and 11 are kind of a rabbit trail. But then in chapter 12, he continues with the purpose of the letter. 12 through 16, in this final section, it deals with our application of chapters 1 through 8. How the redeemed of the Lord should live in this world. And the timing of this letter is during Paul's visit to Corinth around 55 common era. And the consensus on this thought and on the date you can find in almost all commentaries. It's pretty well accepted. So with all of that under our belt, let's go to chapter 1 and verse 1. And it says, Paul, a servant of Messiah Yeshua, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. This opening verse is so important to our understanding if you're going to understand Paul and his writings. He opens most of his letters in a like fashion, but in this one he purposely takes more time to tell us who he is and what he's about. I really think that the problem with most who read Paul's letters don't take the time to understand this first verse and maybe all seven of these first verses. But definitely not this first verse. His opening statement, he's not only identifying himself and his relationship to the audience, but he's also telling us so much about his relationship with Yeshua. Now we should ask ourselves, why would he call himself Paul? If his Hebrew name is Shaul, why would he call himself Paul? Which I I might add means small or little. Well, if you listen to the average pastor in a church, he's going to tell you that his name was changed from Shaul to Paul after the Damascus Road experience. That's part of the salvation he received, a new Greek name. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. Because the fact is, Jews living in the diaspora, in the dispersion, have a long-standing custom of giving their children two names. What they consider their real name is their Hebrew name. That's used in the synagogue by their family and friends. Paul's was Shaul. The other name is one that blends in with the local population. That they can be called when they're out and about. Shaul and Paul were both given to him by his mother and father. Both of them already in use at the time of his salvation. Why would he use the name Paul? Because it's familiar to the Romans that he's writing to. And it's the same reason he uses it in most of his other letters. He calls himself now, listen to this, he calls himself a servant. And not just a servant, but a bond servant. A term that would be loathed in Roman society. This would in Roman society be the lowest of people. Not a free man, but a servant owned and bought for a price. But I'm sure that Paul uses it here in the Hebrew context of servant. The Hebrew word for servant would be evid, a bond servant. You see, the Torah states that if you have a Hebrew slave and he was made your slave due to some obligation to you, that you would have to release him in the year of release. In the year of release, you had to set him free. Now, in the year of the release, the servant had the option of going free, of course, because he was released. But what if he didn't want to go free? Because he liked living with his master. Then he could go out to a post and have his ear pierced with an awl. And he could remain a slave to the master voluntarily. 
And this would seem unimaginable to Romans and even to us. But if we understood that in a God-fearing Hebrew household, this would not be so uncommon because God requires that you treat your slaves almost as family. So the servant who pierced his ear wanted to be free from his former life because to him that was slavery. Relying on himself was not something that he wanted to return to. He wasn't successful at it. He didn't want to return to it. And now through being a bondservant to his master, he's free from that former's life. And that would be the thought behind Paul's statement. He's a voluntary slave to Messiah because his master is so wonderful. And his slavery is freedom from the bondage that he was in and could not overcome on his own. Listen to this Midrash because it states almost the same thing. This is from Ruth Rabbah. It says, Rabbi Simeon said, And the servant is free from his master. He who performs the will of his creator angers his evil inclination. But once he's dead, he emerges into freedom as it is said. And the servant is free from his master. And so here's what the Midrash is saying. It says, By serving the creator, you anger the flesh. Yet once you die to the flesh, die to your former self, you're free to live for God, free from the flesh. And so Paul thought of himself as a slave, able only to do the will of his master. The will of his master was far better than the life that he had lived on his own, that he had strived so hard in. Now he also calls himself an apostle, a sheliach in Hebrew, a sent one is what it means, one who's sent. An apostle is one who's sent out for a specific purpose. And this was common in the first century. It was common in the first century for the Sanhedrin to send out men into the diaspora to uh, explain their rulings, their halakha. Listen to what Acts chapter 9 and verse 1 and 2 said about Shaul. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. You know, we might look at this, I certainly look at it as Paul asking here to be an apostle, a sent one for the Sanhedrin. And this would be the understanding. He was going out with the authority of the Sanhedrin and it was a specific authority It conveyed a specific message. An apostle, like a servant, didn't vary from what those who sent him or his master asked of him. And so in this case, Paul would not vary from the parameters of this letter that he received from the high priest. They were sent for a specific purpose and that alone. And so when he says an apostle, it means he was sent by God for a purpose. Paul was called to be sent to the nations. Notice what he says next. He says, set apart for the gospel of God. He connects these two with an and. Called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. He was separated to deliver the good news to the nations. And so if we put these two together, he was the one sent by Yeshua to deliver the good news and nothing more. That was his mission. That was his sending. 
And so Shaul was to deliver the good news and he tells us whose good news. Because he doesn't just say the gospel. He says the gospel of God. This wasn't something new. This wasn't something foreign to Israel. It's the gospel of God. And to be sure that we knew it wasn't new, he says this in verse 2, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. When Paul says scriptures here, he means holy writ, the written word. And at that time, for all intents and purposes, would not include his letters nor the gospels as they weren't written yet. What it means is what we call the Old Testament. Paul will use the Tanakh, the Old Testament. He will use 60 quotes from the Tanakh in the book of Romans. To prove that the gospel is the message that he was sent to deliver. And it's in accordance with scriptures and it's valid. You know, that's what makes the thought that Paul would insinuate that the Torah of God is no longer so absurd. No one uses an invalid source to prove his point unless his point is invalid. And so over and over he uses the Torah as his source to prove the validity of the good news that he taught. Paul shows the validity of his teaching by using the Torah, the Tanakh, to establish his teaching. If as much of the church asserts that Paul's words were of a higher authority than the word of God, then he would have no need for such quotes. So the gospel was announced through the Holy Scriptures And when we, and the prophets, and when we think of that, we think, oh, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 42, 52, 53, Jeremiah 31, Zechariah. And certainly it was announced there, the good news was announced there. Ah, but what about David? Psalm 22, Psalm 110, and other Psalms. How about Moses? Genesis chapter 18, Deuteronomy chapter 18. We spent the whole of one year going through the Torah, finding the Messiah. Messiah was first announced By the prophet Moses. Moses and David were prophets. And the good news is also announced in the Torah and in the Psalms and in the whole of the Tanakh. Let's read this beginning with verse 2 again. The gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead. Yeshua the Messiah, our Lord. What is the message He opens with? Yeshua is the Son of God. You see, here, Paul really, for me, ends the question of whether Yeshua was... Uh, Whether this term son of God was meaning just the king of Israel, as some would have us believe, or if it means the true son of God as in deity. You see, you can't be the literal son of God and not be deity. It's just not possible. Dogs don't give birth to cats. Paul says of God here regarding his son. Not regarding the son of God, regarding his son. Paul is in perfect agreement with Mark who also wrote to the Romans and in the first chapter of his gospel declares Yeshua to be the son of the living God. 
Not just king, not just man, but the actual son of the living God. The son of God on earth. The son of God made lower than the angels who chose to be reduced to fallen man because of his enormous love for us. He says in human nature he was a descendant of David. You see, I want to say there's a real problem for those who think Yeshua was just a man on earth and nothing more. That was the same mistake that the rulers of this age made. If they had known different, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But they did. And because they did, God showed him to be his son by raising him from the dead. Not just like raised him from the dead as Yeshua raised Lazarus from the dead only to die again, but raised his son to his former glory, the glory he had with him before the creation of the world. And that was bad news for the rulers of this age because it sealed their fate. Good news for us because it sealed ours as well. All that have accepted Yeshua were justified by that faith. The resurrection, listen, the resurrection of Yeshua was key to the good news. You find it in every message they preach just about. Listen to Acts chapter 2 and verse 29. It says, Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. His tomb is here today. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah. That he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay, decay, but God raised this Yeshua to life, and we're witness of that fact. Listen to Acts chapter 4. The priests and the captain and the temple guard and the Sadducees came to Peter and John while they were still speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were, pre- were teaching people and proclaiming Yeshua, the resurrection of the dead. Why don't you see, it was the cornerstone of the message of the apostles. It should be our cornerstone, too. It should be the cornerstone of our message. You know, these apostles were sent out in two, and so everywhere they went, there were two witnesses. In the mouths of two or three, let all things be established. There were two witnesses that Yeshua was resurrected from the dead, and guess what? There was no witnesses to dispute it. I think it's a shame that that there are those who doubt that Yeshua is the Son of God. Because if he was just a man, I'll tell you what, I would throw this book away. We could forget about our justification. A mere man without sin? Really? You really believe that? A mere man restoring men? You really believe that? Think of it this way. Can a prisoner release and restore a prisoner? Or this way, if I have a beautiful handmade vase by a master potter and I break it, can I remake it myself? No, even if I glue everything together perfectly, the cracks will show when its value be diminished. You see, to restore that which was lost, I have to go back to the master potter himself and have him remake it. And the same is true of us. We're unable to restore what God has made. No man alone can restore us in our fallenness to our former glory. It takes the original creator. And that's why it's said of Yeshua, by him all things were created. Listen to what he says again. The gospel of God 
the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures regarding his son, as to whom his human nature was a descendant of David, and through and who through the spirit of holiness was declared to, with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. You see what he's saying? Yeshua was announced by the prophets. God prophesied that he would come beforehand through the holy scriptures. David told us in Psalm 110, he says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Isaiah spoke of it. In chapter 7 and verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. And you'll call him Emmanuel, God with us. They prophesied it. They declared it. Ah, but God had the final say. He declared it. He confirmed it with undeniable certainty through the power of the resurrection of Messiah. There's no doubt about Yeshua. He was and is and Always will be God's son. It was only his son that could do what he did. Not a man. Think about it. If a man could do what he did, how about Yochanan Hamakville, who we call John the Baptist? He was a man. Listen, he was born with the Holy Spirit from birth. No recorded sin in his life. He loved the people. Put to death by evil men for declaring the word of God. One of the true sons of Israel and a son of God in the sense that all the Israelites are called the sons of God. You see, he was all of those things and he was just a man. And was he resurrected? Yeshua was declared with power to be God's true son through the prophets by his resurrection from the dead, the first fruits of the dead. John, Yochanan's resurrection comes only after the Son of God. Listen to verse 5. Through him and for his namesake we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Messiah Yeshua. Guess what? We're all in the same boat. We've all been called to belong to Messiah Yeshua. We're invited to join the family of God. The way has been made, it's been made possible for us. And we are accepted by our faith in the redemptive work of Messiah Yeshua. Paul says, through him and for his namesake, we receive grace and apostleship. The word for grace there, of course, is charis in the Greek. And I always love the way uh, Strong's define this. Listen to it. Especially the divine influence upon the heart and its reflection in your life. Therese puts it almost equally as eloquently. He says, uh, The merciful kindness by which God, exerting his holy influence upon our souls, turns them to Messiah, keeps strengthens and increases them in Christian faith, knowledge and affection, and kindles them to exercise Christian virtues. Paul says that through the Messiah, he received the divine influence in his life and the call to apostleship. He's saying it was nothing that he did in this life, but it was through the divine influence of the Messiah that he was called and that he fulfills that call as well. You know, I've heard some say that he's trying to, he's, he's glorifying himself with these words. Far be it. It's just the opposite. 
He's saying, I'm merely an empty vessel. Nothing without Yeshua. Nothing without the divine influence in my life. His call was to call a people from among all the Gentiles to obedience that comes through faith. Now where it says, I want you to see, where it says through obedience that comes through faith, Mark Nanos in his excellent commentary on the book of Romans says this, and I would concur, it should have, would better be rendered obedience that faith requires. And I say this because Shaul will later say it in the book of Ephesians. He says this in chapter 2, verse 10. He says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Messiah Yeshua to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Good works are the mitzvot, the positive commands. Love your neighbor as yourself. God saved us and recreated us in Messiah Yeshua to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. Our faith requires good works. Not only did Shaul say it, but listen to what John says. It's in the mouth of many witnesses. John says this in chapter 3. Everyone who sins breaks the Torah, the law. In fact, sin is Torahlessness, lawlessness. But you know that he appeared that he might take away our sins. In him there is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen or known him. John says, no one goes on sinning. In fact, he says, if you go on sinning, you didn't even know him. James makes it eminently clear. Listen to what Yeshua's brother says, Yaakov. He says in chapter 2, verse 19, Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe there is one God. Good, even the demons believe and shudder. You foolish man. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? And then if we go down to verse 26, it says, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Faith requires good deeds. Good deeds are obedience to God's word. And without obedience, faith is dead. Without obedience to God shows you've never seen Messiah. You don't know him. That's what John said. So I'm quite confident that Mark Nanos is correct. Obedience that faith requires. I mean, if I believe that there's a tornado coming down the street, I'm not going to go out and spread my picnic lunch on the lawn. Right? Now let me read from the Young's Literal what he says in verse 6. Among whom are also ye the called of Yeshua the Messiah. Paul, by saying you are also called, heaps the Gentiles in Rome in the same boat we're in. He's in. In other words, these Gentiles are two bondservants, bought and paid for with a price. And they're given a mission as well to preach the good news to their fellows in order that by faith in God, those fellows would turn to the obedience to God that faith requires. You see, we're now like Paul, bond servants of Messiah. We're servants of God Most High. First, we're called by the grace, the divine influence of God on our hearts. It brings us to repentance. It brings us to the atonement for our sins. Grace allows us to accept Yeshua Only the grace of God, lest any man should boast. The church has always got that part right. You hear that in every sermon. But where the church has 
failed is they forgot we are God's workmanship, created in Messiah Yeshua to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So much of the church teaching would have you come to church. I'm not saying all of the church, but there's a lot of the church that would have you come to Sunday meetings, sit in the pew, put your money in the offering plate, hear the preacher say you're saved by grace and that alone, the Torah is no more, it's finished, go home and live your life. End of message. And so much of the church goes home, doesn't give it another thought until it's time to go to church next Sunday, put our money in the plate again and hear the same message because it makes us feel good. That's not the good news. That's not the good news that Paul taught. It certainly is not what God intended. Let me say, that kind of religion is what Marx called the opiate of the masses. God intended we become like Messiah and live kingdom lives every day. And if we did that, Marx would have never said what he said because we'd have been such a thorn in his side. Being servants, we're called to obedience that faith requires. We'll take us later to chapters 12 through 16. That's the application for what we're reading here. And so Paul, in these first verses, gives a, a mini outline of his letter in this opening statement. We all have this invitation to be servants of God, to become part of the family of God. And we know we're the family of God because we're loved by God. And to that end, he says this in verse 7, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. We're called to be saints. The letter is written primarily to non-Jews in Rome, but it's addressed to all who are loved by God and called to be His saints. There are Jewish people among the community in Rome, but the main body of this letter is to non-Jews. And Paul tells them, we're called, and again, this term means we have this invitation, and what do we have an invitation to? We have an invitation to be saints. And what does it mean? The definition, a most holy thing, a saint. You see, we've been invited by God, through God, to be holy. We're invited to be set apart vessels for God. Like Yeshua says, He that believeth in me, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. We're vessels. And let me tell you what that means. The vessels in the temple were holy. They were made for us specifically according to the instruction of God and they were made for the purpose that they were used. They were set apart for a sole purpose. As an example, there were pitchers for pouring out the wine libation. There were rocks for catching the blood. Both were holy and set apart for the service intended. You didn't take the pitchers for the wine and go back to the priest quarters and use them to make your tea. You didn't even take them back there to use them for wine. They were set apart. They were holy. You didn't take the rocks home and cook your soup in them. They were set apart for the service of God. They were set apart for a specific service as well. You didn't take a Mizrach and use it for a wine libation. Well, in the same way, you're set apart for the service of God. We just read it. Let's read it again so we're clear. Ephesians 2, For we are God's workmanship created in Messiah Yeshua to what? 
do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. That's the good news. We, like Paul, are set apart for the gospel of God. Paul is telling us that we too have received grace, the divine influence on our hearts, and we're called to the obedience that faith requires. Let me tell you what it means. We're not to be pew sitters. We're not to be internet browsers. Those who run from this teacher to that teacher, spending their whole lives filling their heads with God knows what until they're so confused they don't even know the good news anymore. That's not what we're set apart for. We're set apart to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. And folks, if you miss that, you miss the purpose of your calling. And you better get back to rereading the Bible. You missed it. If you waste your time doing other things, you're like a Mizrach that somebody uses to cook their soup in. We're servants of God, holy things removed from the profane use and set apart for the service of the Holy One of Israel. Set apart by God, servants of the Most High. Paul was set apart as an apostle, as a sent one to the nations to proclaim the good news. Now the question I have for you is what are you set apart for? Have you taken the time to find out? And I ask because the obligation is on each of us to find out where we're to serve. What is our purpose? Is it a teacher? Then teach. Is it a servant? Then serve. Is it giving? Then give. Find your purpose. Shaul found his. Let's busy ourselves with the purposes of God and find ours. And so this is lesson one of Romans. And look at it this way. We got the first seven verses done. And considering that there are 433 verses in the book of Romans, we should be done by about this time next year.